Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This morning, as we look at what has to be one of the most popular and beloved of all of the stories and narratives in the New Testament, the account of Jesus's amazing conversation with Nicodemus. Beloved, hear now the very written words of God. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came, by, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven the Son of Man. In other words, no one has come from heaven and can verify what's going on from heaven and realities of heaven and say it to you. Verse 14. Here's the truth you need to hear, Nicodemus. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Now, recently, we've made some card changes in the Ray family. Stephanie says, in another life, I might have been a used car dealer, because I really enjoy... The process, I want to find a good deal. I think the chase and the hunt is very exciting. I think I inherited it from my father-in-law, who was really into this kind of thing. And so, probably for over a year, probably much longer than that, it became apparent that my beloved wife, Stephanie, we needed to retire the minivan. 
okay, from over 20 years of usage. Not the same minivan, but ever since we had our precious daughter, Virginia, thus we started in the minivan kind of standard of living, okay? Um, we loved our minivan. Our minivan was outstanding. Perhaps some of you like a minivan, okay, and, and, and thinks it has some, some cool status points. Not, not many do, but um, at any rate, <laughs> Stephanie said, you know, our kids are almost married now. It's time to get rid of the minivan. So we switched her out of the minivan and got her just a little smaller SUV that she's loved. But I had a smaller SUV, okay? And so there was a domino effect because I needed a bigger family car. You know, I'm kind of the Clark Griswold of the family. We need a family truckster. We need a car that can take us as a family where we need to go. We do a yearly pilgrimage to the Carolinas. So I wanted a car for that. So I got a much bigger, longer, larger SUV, everything I ever wanted in a vehicle. Found, you know, looked, studied car trader, auto trader, found the right one, did the thing. And so Stephanie very quickly, you know, said, this, this thing is big. Do you know how to drive this thing? You know, and I said, of course I know how to drive this thing. Okay, the boy said, Dad, do you really know how to drive this thing? This is like three times as big as the car that you just had. I got it, no problems, okay? Soon thereafter, I learned that there are additional skills you need to have in driving a longer car. It's like a Ford Expedition. It is like so long. It's like, I think Nate called it like a boat, like you've purchased a boat. It's like driving a boat. It actually has a camera on there that for people like me, when you park, you have to push the camera and make sure you're far enough over the line, that you're between the lines, things like that. You know, there have been some other growing pains as well. The other day I was trying to park and like a stump jumped out and hit the back of my car. <laughs> it was really strange, odd and unusual, okay? So, but I found a part and I fixed it, buddy. Okay, so there you go. Um, I was reading about the car when I figured out it's big, I'm not familiar, comfortable with it, so I read online that one good thing about these cars is their side mirrors, are, they extend out a little bit. So there's really not a blind spot. And I believe that until I shouldn't have last week, okay? And so I was driving Virginia to school on the tollway, going north, was probably a little bit north of 635, heading north, looked at my left side mirror, I'm in the middle lane, I thought I was fine. I looked at the, at the side mirror, there was nobody coming, and then a moment later, I started to shift, and a white SUV that had been flying came up on my left. I looked to the left, it is right beside me. It is like a nanometer from the, the concrete sidewall, and I, you know, of course, swerved right back to the middle, and Virginia was just singing and had no idea what was going on, and I mean, the adrenaline that had pumped into my bloodstream. It was like a very near miss. So I went home that day and ordered through Amazon those little side blind spot mirrors, little circular blind spot mirrors, okay, that will help make sure you can see your blind spot. I learned the hard way. The car's got a big blind spot. Nicodemus was learning 
the hard way. That is the teacher of Israel, the teacher of Israel. He and all the Israelites had a massive blind spot. Okay? A potentially fatal blind spot. My question for you is how did it get this way? Need to adjust this real quick. Time out. Okay. How did it get this way? L let's look at our text. Look at verse 10. It's obvious Nicodemus is not understanding what Jesus is saying. Okay. For those of you who have seen the Charlie Brown cartoons, you know, I think that were like Charles Schultz and they animated in the 60s. Remember how the teacher sounded to us who were watching it? Joshua Bai has never seen Charlie Brown. He has no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> the teacher would say, wah, 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 wah. Charlie Brown understood what the teacher was saying, but we had no idea what the teacher was saying. That's like, Jesus is like the teacher from Charlie Brown and Nicodemus, all he's hearing is, wah, he can't understand what Jesus is talking about. What's the context? It's night. Why does John tell us that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night? Because Jesus' reputation has already started to grow. Why does Nicodemus come to begin with? What does the text say? The text indicates that Jesus has already started doing some signs. Okay, think miracles. And Nicodemus knew enough to know that it was not normal for people to be able to do these kinds of miracles. He had no doubt witnessed some of Jesus' teaching. He wanted to know more. You know, I think he was trying to find out, are you the one? But already the Pharisees and the Sadducees had grown oppositional to Jesus. And we'll think about why that is in just a moment. But already there was opposition to his ministry and to John the Baptist's ministry. And so Nicodemus comes at night. He wants a private meeting. He wants to figure out what's going on. He wants Jesus' undivided attention. He's concerned about what people would think of him. And so here he gets a private audience with Jesus. Look at the beginning of the text, verse 1. There's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. What does that indicate? He is part of the Sanhedrin, the high ruling council of the Jews. Look at verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Then Jesus answers in a way that he would have perceived to be like a non sequitur, like it would not follow from what Nicodemus had said to him. Jesus responds, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I think what's going on is that Jesus says one thing, Nicodemus interprets it another way. So if you have different translations, some translations read verse 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless is 
unless one is born what? What's an alternate translation? From above. Okay. He cannot see the kingdom of God. I think that's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about a birth from above. A new birth. A new life. A total renovation of who you are. That's what Jesus is talking about. But that Hebrew, I mean that Greek phrase could also be translated again. And so Nicodemus doesn't get it. He does not understand what's going on. Look at what Jesus says in verse 10. Are you, does he call him a teacher? Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Many scholars think Nicodemus wasn't just any teacher. He was the leading teacher in Jerusalem. One of the top scholars of his day. John portrays him in a favorable light throughout his gospel. How is it that you, Nicodemus, the teacher of the Jews, don't understand, don't get this? Nicodemus, can we agree, had no idea what Jesus is talking about. Sorry, Nate, this thing is, we're having some problems. This is good for my sanctification. Okay, here we go. My question for you, if the lunch conversation revolved around how it is or how it was that the teacher of Israel, someone who's portrayed in a favorable light, would have no idea what Jesus was talking about. How had he become that disconnected? And I'll also tell you this, like if you look at verse 7, when Jesus says, do not marvel that I said to you, if you're actually reading from your ESV Bible, there'll be a text note. Those yous are plural. He's not just talking to Nicodemus. He's talking to all of Israel through Nicodemus. What's true of Nicodemus is true of everyone. How can it be that none of you understand this? None of you get, you need a new heart, a new life, Anybody have any idea what Jesus is alluding back to? Jesus is making an illusion of being born of water and of the Spirit. And Jesus is incredulous that Nicodemus does not know this. What passage of the Old Testament is it very likely that Jesus is alluding back to and he's amazed Nicodemus doesn't know it? It's Ezekiel 36. Let me read to you. Ezekiel 36. This was a prophecy in the Old Testament about what would be new and wonderful about the new covenant. I will sprinkle clean water on you and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit will be put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and in my ways. How was it that Nicodemus somehow missed this? This was a major prophetic pronouncement and prediction. I think it's my glasses. I'm just going to take the glasses off. I went back to my old microphone. I don't think I'll ever do that again. Okay. 
How is it, my question to you, that Nicodemus has become this unaware of what would be needed on behalf of God's people, the teacher of Israel? He thinks Jesus is talking about a physical birth. Jesus is not talking about a physical birth. Jesus is talking about a spiritual birth, being made new, brought into the new creation. Nicodemus, totally unaware. If you had to answer that right now, how did things get here? How did we go from the glory and beauty of David? How did we get from the glory and beauty of Solomon's temple and the Holy Spirit Shekinah glory coming down into the temple and the Jews euphorically worshiping? How did we get from there to the top leader in Israel having no acquaintance with what Jesus was talking about. Well, think about what had happened. How long had it been, these are rhetorical questions, how long had it been since the Holy Spirit had sent a prophet to Israel at this point? Any idea? Wouldn't it be since the book of Malachi closed? Almost 500 years no prophet, no messenger, no challenge to your way of thinking, okay? Very brief history lesson explains how things had gotten to this point. If you go way back to 722 BC, God had sent prophet after prophet after prophet to the northern kingdom, repent, believe, they didn't listen, what happened? God raised up Assyria to judge the people and take them into captivity. The scene shifts to the southern kingdom. God sends prophet after prophet after prophet to the southern kingdom. They don't listen. 136 years later, what happens to them? The Babylonians come in, defeat them, take most of their population into captivity. So now in modern day Iran and Iraq, you probably have tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Jews that have been resettled there. Then the Persians defeat the Babylonians, and what do they do? They let the Jews come back. The Jews come back. The Persians have a different policy, you know, like now if the Republicans hold office, they have the White House, they have a whole different set of foreign policies, right? Then another administration come in, and they can have a whole different priority list for their, how they're gonna engage in foreign relations well, Persia had a very different view than Babylon. They let the Jews come back. They underwrote the rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of the wall. The Jews had their place again, their way of life, their worship. This is a little test, making sure you're awake. Okay, drink your coffee. What empire comes next? So you had Assyria, Babylon, then you had the Persians. Who comes next? The Greeks, Alexander the Great. He takes over the promised land, right? And then it's, see, here's the deal. As the Greeks began to put pressure on the Hebrews, on the Jews, to assimilate into Greek culture, guess what? That's the origin of the Pharisees. The group of which Nicodemus was a part, it had a good beginning, about 200 B.C., Lots of pressure for the Jews 
to become more Greek and get absorbed into Greek life and culture. The middle class in Israel formed a group called the Pharisees. That name, the name Pharisee, what does it denote? Be separate. So the Pharisees became a thing in about 200 B.C. They focused on the law of God, but in order to make sure Jews stayed Jews, what did they add? Anybody know? They added oral tradition. They added their own interpretation to the law of God. And with each successive generation of Pharisees, you got more oral tradition, more interpretations, more layers, more laws. To say that the Pharisees were successful in making sure the Jews stayed separate would be an understatement. So by the time that Nicodemus is talking to Jesus, the Jews are their own separate, distinct people. They have layer on layer on layer on layer of the law to ensure they're separate Question for you. I'm loving this dialogue. <laughs> Question for you. What was kind of the average standard of living like for the Jews of Jesus' day? What was their life like? Were they an oppressed minority that were desperate and scratching together a living? No. Here's the thesis. In terms of standard of living and life in their nation, they arguably had never had it better. Even under David, every spring, what would the kings go out to do? They would go out to war. They would defend their people. In the first century, at the time this conversation happened, what foreign threats was Israel worried about? To your knowledge. Were they worried about the Persians invading them? Yes or no? No. Why not? Because of the Pax Romana. They had the finest military police force in the history of the world defending their borders. If you look back into John 2, if you look back into John 2, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you destroy this temple and I'll do what? I'll raise it up in how many days? Three days. Like the Pharisees are amazed. What was their response? Do you remember? They said it took how long to build this temple? 46 years. How in the world are you going to do this when it took 46 years? Think about this. Herod had engaged in one of the most ambitious building projects in the history of the world. In about 20 BC or 26 BC through 20 AD, Herod totally renovated, rebuilt, renewed the temple. He doubled it. He made it more beautiful and gorgeous and amazing than arguably it had ever been before. Massive. So think about the kind of temple that the Jews would have been visiting as Jesus grew up. Like 500 years before when they had rebuilt it, when they got back to the land, it couldn't compare to what Herod had given them. You have no foreign threats. Not one. The empire is totally peaceful. You have the, a five-star resort 
where you can worship the living God without any concern whatsoever. There were no prophets coming in telling them that they should be circumspect, telling them to, to look at their hearts, okay? They thought of salvation like we think of citizenship. Are you concerned at all that your United States citizenship is going to be taken away? Are you concerned about that, Jonathan? Not one bit. They viewed citizenship in Israel by this point in many ways similar to the way that we view being citizens of the United States of America. It had become separate from a spiritual reality. So if I asked you, what is your assurance of salvation? If I asked Will Thomas, like, you know, what is your confidence? You're right with God. Will Thomas would say Jesus. If we ask Nicodemus, what is your basis for confidence that you'll be with the Lord forever? What would Nicodemus have said, do you think? I'm a son of Abraham. I was born saved. I was born a Jew. I'm God's chosen people. What are you talking about? They didn't have Billy Graham's doing crusades in their days. How many people at that time didn't believe in God? How many? Virtually none. They were all theists. So just think about it. You're Nicodemus. You're Abraham's son. You're the people of God. You worship in the temple. You follow the Ten Commandments. Your, your life is fine. There's no worries. Until that white SUV came flying up the left lane in the form of John the Baptist and Jesus. And they served as disruptors. They took up the mantle of the Old Testament prophetic office and said things are not okay. You think things are okay. They're not okay. You are slowly dying and you do not know it. How many people here have carbon monoxide monitors in their house? Why do you have those in there? Because carbon monoxide is the silent killer. Stephanie put them all over our house. And you hear these terrible stories of people passing away at night and they have no idea. There's no warning. John the Baptist and Jesus were sounding the alarm. You are dying. You are perishing. You think you are saved and right with God and accepted by the Holy One because of your ethnicity, because of your nationality. Are you kidding me? You have to be born again. That is such a foreign concept by 27 AD that Nicodemus didn't even know what he was talking about. You need what Ezekiel prophesied would happen. You need a new heart. You need God's spirit in you. You need total renovation. You need a completely new perspective. And it shook up the whole world. What was Jesus' prescription for new life? Look at, the, look at the text. At the end, verse 14, 
So do you, let me, let me as you're looking at, um, so in verse 13, he basically says, I've come from heaven. I can tell you what truth is, okay? And then in verse 14, but before I read verse 14, let me read that little devotional again from Spurgeon. Because like, so I'll just say this. How do you know if you're born again? How do you know if you have new life in Jesus Christ? Because that's a prerequisite to see the kingdom. In order to see and know the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. For me, that happened in college. The Lord Jesus changed my life. When I trusted in him, everything changed. Like the sky had a new color, the flowers had color. All of a sudden, I had purpose and meaning. And I just, I can't even explain what a life change it was. But not everybody had the kind of background that I had. I was born and raised in the most dead and main line of Protestant churches. Almost like a Nicodemus-like context. And I didn't know. And God, by his grace, saved me in college. Not everybody, you know, goes from being wild as a hare like David Ray to trusting in Christ. Some, you know, many, many of our precious children are born and raised in, in the church and they don't, like, experience drug addiction before coming back, right? And sometimes, like, my, my precious wife would be more of a person that was born and raised in the church and really can't remember a time that she didn't love Jesus. So sometimes that kind of person can look at a text like this and feel guilty and wonder, is the Spirit at work in them since they haven't, like, had this massive 180? This is where Spurgeon is so helpful. Here's my question to you. How do you know if you have new life in Christ? How do you know if you're born again? Jesus tells us. And before I read that, Spurgeon knew it all along. Spurgeon said, it is not your hold of Christ that saves you. It's not your joy in Christ that saves you. It's not your subjective experiences that save you. What is it that saves you, according to Spurgeon? Jesus Christ. He saves you. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus? He said in the Old Testament there was this type. There was a situation where the people were grumbled, grumbling. They were dying in unbelief. And so God sent a plague in through these serpents, okay? He sent these snakes in to afflict the people. And they were dying. And God said to Moses, I want you to make a replica of a bronze snake. I want you to hold it up on this pole. And everybody who looks up to the pole will be saved. This is in the book of Numbers. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you're the teacher. You should know. That was a foreshadowing. Look at verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man be lifted up up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life how do you know if you're born again how do you know if you have new life in Jesus Christ are you looking to him in his life death and resurrection if you are looking to Jesus then you will see and know the kingdom of God
Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you and praise you for who you are and all that you have done. We don't even begin to have all the time to mine the riches from this text. Father in heaven, we thank you that in the fullness of time, you sent the greatest prophet of the Old Testament and John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah of the living God, to disrupt these people, this entire nation that was asleep and was dying a slow death. We thank you that you shook them from their comfort zone and reoriented their focus on where life comes from. It doesn't come from being a son of Abraham, if you will. It comes from being an adopted child of the Lord Jesus. Father in heaven, we pray that your spirit would be at work today among everyone in this room. We pray that all of us would be looking to the Lord Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection for salvation and new life. We pray this in his name. Amen.